Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. For so many of you who listen to this podcast, recipes are among your family's greatest treasures. You cherish these recipes because they connect you to your ancestors and the sacrifices they made to your homeland and its beauty that cannot quite be matched, and of course, your family's resilience through change, struggle, and often even tragedy. Sri Bonanapu loves her grandmother's recipes for all of these things and for the fact, of course, that they are delicious, the best food she's ever eaten. So when Sri's uncle challenged her to transform the 100-page Word document that sat on his computer and in her family's inboxes into a real, bonafide, honest-to-goodness, hardback cookbook, Shri began a journey to creating a -a one-of-a-kind business that checks all of the boxes for you and for me. Shri's company, Heirloom Project, offers two paths to creating cookbooks that are professional, elevated, beautifully designed, and made of the highest quality materials, all while remaining amazingly affordable. As Shree says, her goal is to create books that belong on a shelf or on your coffee table besides Inagarten, Giada, or any other star author. There's no minimum or maximum on the number of contributors that can collaborate on each book or on the copies that you can print. So you can use Heirloom to crowdsource a cookbook from your extended family, your church, or your civic group. And if you have a marketing channel, you can even create a cookbook to sell. In this episode, Sri shares with us all of the tips and tricks to make her grandmother's lamb biryani and the story of becoming the woman who was both motivated and equipped to begin this remarkable business. One last note, this is a sponsored episode, but only because I believe completely in Sri's mission in the quality of her books and that this service is exactly what many of us have been looking for. So congratulations to Sri on creating something that we all need. And thank you so much for being here. Hi, Sri. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Is the baby asleep? Not really. So fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, so we've had an interesting, so, um, you know, I'm in India right now. Yes. And Summer, it gets very hot. So it's about right now, we still haven't reached the peak of summer when we're all, we already hit 100 degrees a day. Wow. And so, as with any temperate region, we get these crazy showers. But what happened today is the showers, there were hailstorms and it was excessively windy. So we've been losing power every few minutes. We have oh. a backup. So the power keeps coming back on. But I think everything, every time it goes off, she, it kind of freaks her out. And I kind of like, oh, oh no. And usually, even if I have to go, it's just for a couple of minutes. It doesn't take long to sort of just go and calm her down and get back out. Okay. So, but I just wanted to give you the heads up that just in case I have to go. Okay. Let's start at the beginning, which is your recipe. And I have to say, I was thrilled um, when I read it because um, I, I just released the 150th episode and I've never got a biryani recipe before. Wow. So I'm super, I know. Aren't you kind of surprised? I'm surprised. I love it. I'm very excited that this is the first one on the show then. Yes. So what my first question really is, um, what do you consider to be a biryani? Because um, I've had, uh, I've read a lot of different recipes and I've eaten um, a lot of different types at Indian restaurants. And um, what is like kind of that defining characteristic that makes a dish a biryani? 
for me, it is really when the rice is just cooked the right amount. So it's not mushy, nor mm. is it too dry like you would eat in a fried rice. You know, fried rice tends to be like a little bit, the grains tend to be, be tend to be far more separated than they're in a biryani. The mm. second thing is when the meat has been a marinated i mean you wouldn't know this when you ate it but if it's a really good biryani the meat should have been marinated overnight and mm-hmm. then cook for somewhere between an one to two hours at least mm-hmm. never pressure cooked but really just let, you know the meat stewed for so long and then the juices from the meat got into the rice mm-hmm. and that rice gets really juicy and flavorful so that to me is a biryani and my and the thing that i love on like a really good biryani is caramelized onions because i think they just sort of you know the oil and the salt and the acid everything just sort of like mixes together and makes it the best biryani mm well i think caramelized onions on anything is a win of course. <laughs> <laughs> but i have to tell you i unless I have and I didn't know, I don't think I've ever had caramelized onions on top of a biryani before. So that actually was interesting to me. It was surprising about your recipe. Yeah, and not unusual at all. And I'm surprised you actually haven't seen it because a lot of restaurants as well end up doing the caramelized onions on the top with the boiled egg on the side, which in some you know, parts of India is fairly common. Some it isn't the boiled egg. But I would say um, the caramelized onions definitely fairly common, yeah. Interesting. Yes. Never heard of a boiled egg on the side either. That's that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that the most, Im- well, one of the two critical parts of making a good biryani is that the rice is cooked perfectly, not overcooked, not undercooked. Um, tell me what what tips do you have for us to make sure that happens? What should we not skimp on both in terms of choice of rice and also steps that we take? Yeah, that's such a great question because I think oftentimes that's what I've noticed with a bad biryani mm-hmm. is the rice is so dry that, you know, like I said earlier, it's like a fried rice and less of a biryani that's been stewed with meat for an extended period of time. Or it's so mushy where you just don't get the texture that's right for a biryani. So I would say a couple of things. One, in terms of choice of rice, I think any basmati rice, and this is fairly you know commonly available mm-hmm. in any or now um, I would say never do a jasmine rice because sometimes I've seen people if for whatever reason they can't access a basmati rice are like oh I'll use jasmine rice it is not the same and you should not be using it okay but within a basmati rice typically what you'll see is the label will say something like a long grain basmati rice so as long as it has that label for the most part they're all pretty good I mean you can go into very specific brands but um, I've found that you know for the most part they all work just fine Okay. In terms of the steps themselves. So there's two different ways in which I've done it. The first being where you parboil the rice, right? So you're basically taking a pot of water, mm-hmm. you're boiling it like you would do with pasta, and then you're putting the raw rice, which is basically what we typically do is you wash the rice and we do this for any kind of rice we make. So mm-hmm. I might just be making white rice to eat with a curry or I might be making... Um, a rice for a fried rice or even a biryani. But I always wash my rice ahead of time and mm-hmm. I soak. And the soaking time can vary anywhere between, depending on how far, how far out you've planned it, 30 minutes to a couple of hours. But I think that is a really, really important step, especially for a biryani, because it makes sure it, it makes sure that when you make the rice, the grains don't stick with each other, but have absorbed enough water and moisture that they still have sort of, you know, they're not dry once you cook them. Mm-hmm. 
I so see. soaking the rice ahead of time. And then what a couple of people, or not a couple of people do, what I, you know, sometimes will do is when I put my rice into this boiling water, right? Just like we did with the pasta, you mm-hmm. season the rice. So what you want to put in there is whole, what we call garam masala, which, you know, for any of your listeners who are not familiar, it's basically a combination of cardamom pods, whole cloves. We sometimes use a very specific spice called star anise in biryanis, mm-hmm. which gives a fragrant smell. And in even within cardamom pods, you use black as well as green cardamom pods. Oh, and okay. Um, yeah, and the black is, you know, historic, traditionally, black cardamom is extensively used in the north of India. I'm from the south of India. So it's mm. not something we typically use in our cuisine. But you know, in the last couple of decades, it's definitely been something that we've incorporated just to give our food a little bit more of that punch, right? Hmm. So there's black and green cardamom, like I said, there's cloves, there is um, a cinnamon stick, there is star anise. And then two things that I love to use is I love to use bay leaves, because mm-hmm. again, I think bay leaves add just such a fragrant flavor to it, mm-hmm. aroma mm-hmm. as well as a flavor. And the final thing, and this is something I've mostly only seen in my mother's house, but I'm sure a lot of families use it because I have found it in grocery stores, is the literal translation. So in Telugu, which is, you know, the language that I speak, mm-hmm. it's called biryani aku. And aku mm-hmm. means leaf. So it's basically a biryani leaf. And it looks like the shriveled, dried moss. It's basically like it, the closest I can explain, uh, you know, uh, uh, through my words so you can visualize it is it looks like dried moss. And basically you take a little piece of it and then you throw it in the biryani or in the water when you're cooking the rice. Because again, it just has a really fragrant, really unique flavor and aroma to it that you'll find in a lot of biryanis. That's so is the is the dish biryani named for that? spice for that leaf no i think it's the other way i think they named it because they started putting it in biryanis because i have not found it in any other dish so i think they started using it in biryanis and just started calling it biryani aku okay interesting yeah i don't uh i don't have black cardamom i have lots and lots of green cardamom i don't have black and i don't have that so i'll definitely be taking a trip to um I there's several Indian markets um, and Asian markets around me, so I'll be taking a trip. I'm hoping I can find that. Never cooked with it before. That's so interesting. You can skip it. You can skip both of them. Like I said, you know, when um, even black cardamom, I only recently started incorporating, but my mother Mm. will still never use black black cardamom in her rice. It's only green cardamom. So you Mm. don't have to make a trip for it when you go for something else grab it but (laughs) it's not a deal breaker by any means for this biryani and in fact i don't believe it's in my recipe either so yeah so no so yeah exactly right so soaking the rice boiling it with a bunch of these whole spices so Mm -hmm. same Mm -hmm. as you would do with the pasta you boil the rice till it's al dente and why you're doing that is basically because you're going to layer it with the meat again Mm -hmm. and so you don't want to overcook it when you're boiling it over here so when you layer it with the rice and then we'll talk a little bit more about what we call the dum which is you seal it and that's when the heat and the moisture from the meat is going to complete cooking the rice Mm -hmm. and so that's way in which you make sure you don't overcook your rice. I see. And so when you talk about sealing it, the idea is if, if too much steam gets out, the whole dish will dry out. Exactly. Okay. And also, you know, because that you, you want that steam to go back in, right? Because mm-hmm. all of the juice from the meats and the smells and the flavors, like you want everything to sit right back in there. Mm-hmm. And then I keep, the other thing that we also do, this my mother does more than I do, which is adding 
coconut milk mm. to both the curry which we'll talk about a little bit later but also to the rice when you're boiling it because again the you know the the sweetness from that coconut milk really complements the spice and the mm. heat and the saltiness and the fat from the meat right and typically we make biryani with lamb and mm-hmm. so the, the coconut milk is just such a lovely delicate addition to the rice dish which just makes it all come together so beautifully mm my mouth is watering <laughs> for sure <laughs> for sure so tell me um again what's the name for the seal for sealing it properly it's called dum d u m dum okay and two questions one how how do you do that do you wrap it with a towel something like that and two um how do you prevent like the other side where it gets too um wet and moist and just soggy great question yeah so i'll start with the first one which is how i've typically prepared a biryani when i was living in the us is i would use a cast iron deep dish so i'd use a lecrosse mm-hmm. and to me mm-hmm. that was the closest i would get to a dum right because traditionally what they do with a dum mm-hmm. is they cook the biryani in a steel or a copper pot Mm-hmm. and then you take a you take dough basically you take um you know dough that you're making we what we typically make rotis with so you take mm-hmm. a whole dough and then you seal the top of the dish with that dough so it just really like oh, seals wow. the moisture in right and so you're not putting a lid which is giving room to some amount of moisture and um vapor to evaporate but it's literally like you're just sealing the entire thing with the dum with the oh, with the dough wow it's almost with like whole- um like in southern cooking like a chicken pot pie you would put a crust exactly. on and oh that's interesting i've never heard of that that's but fascinating but you want to eat the crust i mean you just basically leave it there to you know seal it up but then hmm. once it's done and you're ultimately eating it you just cut the um crust along the edges and then you throw it out you're not going to eat that crust at all mm interesting okay yeah so that is one so that is traditionally how it's done but of course in you know our modern homes that's very hard to replicate and very tedious so mm-hmm. you could do something like a lecrosse what i've also done is you know in the absence of having that and say i'm just cooking in like an aluminum pan or a steel pan or a nonstick pan mm-hmm. i put a cloth mm-hmm. on top of it and then i put the lid my only mm-hmm. challenge with that becky has been that putting a cloth over there sometimes absorbs too much of yeah. the moisture Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not something I prefer. I prefer just like a really heavy um, lid on top of it. Okay. The second thing is that I've also done is that the concept of dum is also right that there's heat coming in all directions, mm. and which is why I love using a cast iron because I mm. think it just distributes the heat so much more evenly than if I if I were using like say a nonstick pan. The other thing that this trick my mother taught me is she would what she does is when we're finally once we finally layered the meat and the rice and all of this other stuff and we put the lid on top of it you don't put it directly on the flame what we do in our house is you take a regular pan like you know i you, you just a flat pan right it could be nonstick it could be uh, a cast iron pan whatever you have just okay. a flat pan and you put this dish on top of it and then you put it on low heat so what this is doing is it's preventing direct exposure to the heat on the bottom most layer which mm-hmm. usually and so you're not getting you know you want the meat to be succulent and moist and like have its juices right so what this is doing is it's like adding another layer that's shielding the direct heat from the meat so that's one thing the second thing a lot of families do is they just stick their dish into the oven as long as it's mm-hmm. a proof dish so that's another way in which they love doing it because again heat in all directions mm-hmm. 
control the temperature. It's not like just the bottom is getting the heat. But how I grew up, we just put it on the stove because growing up, we never used ovens. We still barely use an oven in the house. And so what we did is we just put on a flat pan, what we call a tava, and then we put on top of it and stick it on the stove for like 20, 30 minutes. Interesting. Okay. Okay. This is, this is so, this is so great. So helpful. Um, (laughs) It sounds like you really don't have a concern that it's going to get soggy. You're, you're everything that you're doing is to prevent it from drying out and you're not concerned about it getting too soggy. So I'll tell you why. Okay. So even within biryani, there's basically, you know, multiple different ways in which you make the biryani, right? Mm. So there Mm. is something called the kachi biryani, which is basically kachi means raw, Mm. where you take the raw meat, you layer it with the rice and you cook it, okay? Mm-hmm. The other method is called pakki biryani, which is what we are going to be talking about, which is the recipe that I typically, you know, our family typically uses, where you cook the meat at least to a certain extent, where it's like 80% done, just like the rice was 80% done. Mm-hmm. And then you layer it. So at this point, you already have a reasonable idea as to how much water the meat has um, let out. Mm, so what this does, the reason I love it personally, Becky, is for this exact reason. Because, you know, I also t- sometimes try and make the kachi, which is the raw meat biryani. And oftentimes I stumble because, you know, especially in the US, sometimes you're buying, you you know, you have frozen chicken or frozen lamb and you're throwing it in there. And then you forget that you you, you didn't estimate that it's frozen. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more. And it's a frozen marinated lamb, which I'll just throw into my um, dish. And I forgot that it had like, you know, it was frozen. Mm-hmm. And I forget suddenly there's like so much water in there. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of this recipe, the reason why I love it is because you're going to cook the lamb first. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make sure that the water evaporates to whatever extent you want your base to be. So, you know, the curry, so the lamb curry in itself that you're cooking. So mm-hmm. you're not going to be left with a ton of liquid. And so okay. you're going to cook it with an exact consistency that you like, where there's enough gravy for you to feel like, you know, it's going to release all of mm-hmm. this extra um, flavor into the rice, but not so much where it becomes a little puddle mm-hmm. Curry and rice. Right. I see. And that you make that sound so easy. But for those of us who haven't grown up making biryanis, <laughs> there's probably more of a, um, you know, a touch to it than you realize. And so, you know, if I have to make the dish more than once, I don't think any one of my family is going to complain because <laughs> it sounds so delicious. Enough. It is. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for error. And like like I said, especially I think with this specific type where you're making the meat separately, you're layering the rice and then you're giving it the dum, which is you're giving it that heat in all directions at a very low temperature for an extended period of time. It all just comes together so beautifully. Mm. And Amazing. the other beauty of this, Becky, the reason I also love to make it this way, and I also make the kachi, which is the raw meat biryani sometimes, is mm-hmm. because you can really control your spice level in this biryani, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, if I'm cooking for friends who are not familiar with Indian food or just <laughs> don't have the same spice tolerance as we have, right? It's really mm-hmm. nice because I start with a very low sort of um, spice marinade and I'll mm-hmm. cook the lamb and then I will re- I can sort of like taste it and then adjust based on, you know, how much I think they, they would enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that's when I finish it off and then I can layer it with the rice and stuff. Versus mm-hmm. with the other kind of biryani, I have to marinate, throw my rice in and everything is done. Right. So that is right. actually like really stressful because you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that it's going to be as spicy as it turned out. Right. Lot more control in terms of like the spice levels, mm-hmm. how much you like your lamb cooked, a lot of mm-hmm. different things. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I see your point. It's a very good point. You can adjust for the second half of the game. That's that's great. Okay, so you've taught me so much. Um, and I am going to try to get that um, biryani leaf because I'm just fascinated. I'd just like to see it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can, but I would love to try. So, um, so another thing that you taught me um, before I even read your recipe, just reading about it, is um, that biryani actually has um, has its roots in Persia, which mm-hmm. I think of biryani as a very um, Indian dish. And um, sorry to my Persian friends listening, I'm sure that this is very clear to you. And I definitely think of Persia as having amazing rice and meat dishes. I've just I've never thought of them as being biryani. So tell me a little bit about the region of India that you are from and um, just enough history that we understand how this dish um, came to you from Persia. Yeah, that's such a great question. And, you know, um, it's really interesting because there's many different regions in India which Mm -hmm. have biryani. But I'm sure a lot of people would argue with me. And this is, again, you know, food in India is very politicized, right? Like Mm. everybody has opinion about it Hmm. but um what i would say is there's two regions where biryani has very strong roots there's one is a city called lucknow which is in the north of india and the second is hyderabad which is where i'm from Hmm. and so hyderabad specifically as you know the mughals ruled india for an extended period of time Hmm. and they made their way to the south of India, what used to be then called the Deccan uh, Peninsula. And Hyderabad was one of the princely states back then. So the Mughals actually ruled us for about 250 years. And Hyderabad is such a fascinating city because the Mughals ruled us for so long. We have an incredible Muslim population. We have these, uh, you know, this, this blended sort of culture and history, not just with food, but also we have these beautiful mosques. One of the most significant sort of like cultural building in Hyderabad is what's called the Char Minar. It's the four minarets and it's mm-hmm. one of the large mosques in the uh, in the state so what that did is it brought in this really amazing sort of influence of persian slash mughalai food into hyderabad and you know we were in general we love spicy food mm-hmm. historically what hyderabad so if you think of geographically right the mm-hmm. state that we're from um, there's a coastal region to it which is where my mother's from mm-hmm. where they eat a ton of seafood so my mother growing up most of her diet consisted of like different kinds of seafood and what typically you don't hear of in an Indian diet, which is sardines and anchovies and like mm. all sorts of um, shrimp and lobster and all of that stuff. Wow. And the inland, which is where my husband's family's from, is where they, as you know, you would expect with any region, right? Inland mm-hmm. is where they're mostly eating um, land animals. So it's right. the goat the lamb and the um, the chicken and stuff. So Hyderabad, basically because of its influence of, you know, the amazing Muslim community that we have, has its very, very um, signature sort of biryani dish. So you come to Hyderabad, every street corner, Becky, will have a biryani point. So it'll have wow. everything from like high end to like carts of biryani. There's a place called Paradise Biryani, which, you know, people used to come from all over India before biryani made its way everywhere. Wow. And they would come to parcel Paradise Biryani and take it back on flight. So it wasn't unheard of when you wow. got on a flight from like Hyderabad to Bombay and you'd be like, ew, what is that smell? And it's like somebody's packed like four <laughs> kilos of biryani to take back to Mumbai because back then you wouldn't get the same quality, right? 
Wow. So that is sort of the history of it of like how you know during the Mughal rule again they made their way with the Deccan plateau the peninsula sorry and then Hyderabad was one of the princely states. And okay. because of that you know I think one of the most beautiful things about Hyderabad is we're such a cosmopolitan city. Mm-hmm. And so you know like I was talking about Charminar like when you go there during any of the uh festival months like Eid just happened right mm-hmm. you go there Eid and it's just lit up and they're doing like halim and nihari in the nights and they're making like all sorts of kebabs and biryanis in the stalls and this wow. it just comes to life it's called the old city and so that's where i would say the biggest influence of sort of all of this little blended persian slash moghlai slash all of this food came together yeah that's that's amazing that's amazing so is it is it now a muslim majority or is it hindu majority but with a significant <laughs> muslim Exactly. Exactly what you said. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. And and how about um you said this place, what was it called? The the Biryani Palace? It's called a Paradise Biryani. Pa- Paradise um Paradise Biryani. Did they put uh caramelized onions on top? Oh, I don't remember. I haven't eaten there in so long. But that's like <laughs> But you know it's fascinating the other day um we have a ton of foodies in our family and I know we'll talk mm. about that in a few minutes but my uncle told me about this place called biryani by the kilo and you know what a kilo is right kilo is yeah 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 another way to measure this thing and so what they do is they're sending you everything on the menu is packed and sent by the kilo so the other wow. day my husband said you know what my mother was unavailable my my husband will only eat my mother's biryani and uh-huh. he said you know let's order this kilo biryani by the kilo and then there comes this giant Tupperware box of like biryani, and I'm like, uh, I ate a little bit, but I tend to find a lot of the biryanis from outside a too dry mm-hmm. and very spicy. So I really, really love the fact that we have our like family biryani recipe that everybody really loves, and so it's right. very, very enjoyable to make it as frequently as we want. Right. Okay. Okay. So this is perfect. Let's start talking um, about your family. So you said that. It's your mom's recipe. Well, um, your mom's the one who makes it now. Your husband will only eat hers, but it originated as your grandmother's recipe. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. So tell me about, is this your maternal or paternal? My maternal grandmother. Okay. Okay. So your mom learned it from her mother and then you learned it from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most of, you know, how I've been influenced in the kitchen has been through my maternal grandmother and mm. she passed away. It's been close to, um, you know, I was 14 when she passed away. Oh, wow. So not so much of an influence when I actually started cooking, mm. but definitely most of my childhood revolved around. And, you know, as with most families, right, all of our holidays were celebrated in my grandmother's house mm. and her love language was food. And, you know, she wasn't a person who you, you wouldn't walk into the house and she wouldn't run to like hug you or like talk to you about mm. your day. But she would show up with a plate of like hot snacks that mm. she knew really, really liked. So those were, you know, those are really my fondest memories of my grandmother. Mm. And my mother sort of to an extent has become that person as well, where all she wants to do is feed people and not just feed people anything, feed people what she knows they will love to eat. Mm. So that's been my biggest influence. And so the biryani thing, you know, there were basically 
two distinct dishes that I remember my grandmother making. I w- and I was when I when when I uh, was filling out your intake form, I was like, which one should I write about? <laughs> Other one is a it's called a vegetable cutlet. It's kind of like a vegetable patty, but huh. again, you know, it's it's a very unusual thing. I haven't eaten that specific. I mean, you eat it everywhere, but it's just that specific kind of it, that recipe. I haven't eaten anywhere else. And I remember these two dishes so clearly because a they're both very laborious. The vegetable cutlets need multiple hands, multiple hours, multiple steps to being prepared. As with the lamb, you know, she was the kind of person who believed that everything had to be bought fresh that morning. Mm. It's mm. something my mother still does and it's something I do, which I'm not very proud of, to be honest, because it doesn't lend itself to an American lifestyle. <laughs> 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 grocery shopping every day, right? Mm. But the idea was that my grandmother would personally go to the butcher and she'd select exactly the cut of meat she wanted. She'd make him chop it a certain way because for biryani, you always want your lamb cubes to be a little bit bigger than if you were making a regular stew. Oh, bigger. Because cooking it for longer. So you uh. want to make sure that they're not small enough where they just start shredding. You know, you don't want a shredded lamb biryani. Oh, you, know? okay. you want a biryani which has like the pieces are kept intact. Mm. So she would go there, she would get that. And then if she was making us anything else, she'd go to the fish monger and then she'd buy the live fish, she'd buy live fish, she'd bring it back. So everything was this very elaborate multi-step process. It mm. wasn't like, oh, send somebody to the market to get lamb and then I'm going to make lamb biryani. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. And then I still remember the scene, um, Becky, back in the day. And what she used to do is she would sit on the floor and I'm going mm-hmm. to find a picture and send this for you unless one of your other, um, uh, you know, anybody else on your shows ever showed you a picture of this. Mm-hmm. It's a knife which is attached to a wooden block mm-hmm. and it moves up and down. Oh, okay. like a so paper cutter in the U.S.? Maybe the equivalent, yeah. Yeah, so you're sitting on the floor. Uh-huh. You're pro- you're sitting, you're squat, I mean, you're sitting cross-legged, but mm-hmm. one leg holds the wooden piece down so it doesn't move. Ah. And then I, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a picture. Yeah, please and do. The, yeah. The other hand, and then one hand is holding the vegetable or the meat mm. under the blade, and the other hand is chopping it. So it's moving the mm-hmm. blade up, which is yes. doing it. So that was that is something that I always remember when I think of my grandmother Becky, which is sitting wow. on the floor oh. with all this lush produce that she got, the produce that she got in the morning and this fresh meat that she got sitting there chopping, chopping, chopping for like hours. And because she didn't trust her, uh, she used to have a sous chef and she wouldn't trust her to do any of this work. And so for me, you know, the biryani just became sort of this iconic thing, right? And then Mm. sort of fast forward to my mother's generation. Um, my mother is not only a fantastic cook, but she's a phenomenal host. And mm-hmm. as a result of my uh, father's work, they used to entertain a lot. They've slowed down a lot now. But when we were growing up, or at least for the last, I would say, at least 30 years, they used to entertain so much. Our house was sort of an open house. And again, you know, when I talk about my book, I'll tell you why that also influenced how I wrote my book. Mm-hmm. But my dad used to have a lot of customers from all over the world. And so for them, you know, hosting people in their house was the best way in which they thought they could show sort of their love and their affection for all of their um, friends and colleagues. Wow. Right? And every single dinner, unless somebody came and they were vegetarian and then, you know, my dad would be like, okay, we'll just do like a vegetarian menu. Mm-hmm. Lamb biryani mm-hmm. would be sort of the showstopper. Right. 
the central dish. And so the central dish. And when I say central dish, my mother will make 12 other dishes. So I, I was just going to say, <laughs> I bet if I ask, I'm going to, my jaw's going to drop at what else she would make to go with it. So can you name maybe some of the things she would make to go with this biryani? Because yeah. listen, that's a, that right there. Like, I'm going to wipe the sweat from my brow and be like, get an orange or something on the side, <laughs> you know, if yeah. I've made it. But she, yeah, exactly. that was just the beginning. Tell me what else she would make. So there's a lot of other stuff that goes into these uh, meals. But I will mm. say that the two things you most always make with a biryani, right? The mm. complement dish and then everything else, of course, can be made is you do a cooling yogurt, which is mm. called rice. And the yes. rice I use. You know, just instead of having like a whisk yogurt, you're going to add some texture to it. Mm -hmm. So there's some diced up cucumbers, tomatoes, onions, a little bit of green chili, a little bit of salt and pepper. And then, you know, people play with it. There's cilantro. There's sometimes something called uh, chaat masala, which gives it a little bit of an extra tang. So mm. people just sort of add to that. But there's always a cucumber, I mean, a yogurt to cool you off. Mm -hmm. And then there's something called a salad. Hmm. And the salmon is another very interesting dish, also very popular in Hyderabad. It's called, and typically what it's called is a mirchi ka salan. A mirchi means a chili. Oh. So it's actually like, you're like, okay, so we're making the spicy biryani dish and then we're doing like another spicy I, I, I was just going to say, you have the yogurt <laughs> to cool you down, but then you have this to heat you back up again. <laughs> so literally, literally just said, I'm not going to lie. I don't know the backstory as to why we need a salon for a biryani, but literally no biryani <laughs> is complete without having a salon on the side. And so the salon is another really, I'm not going to go too much into detail on it, but it's very fascinating because all it is, it's a gravy. Okay. Huh. And they throw in some chilies into it. But the gravy is what makes it so special is the base has tamarind, it has sesame seeds, it has mm. peanuts. Some families will add a little bit of tomato. So it's hmm. kind of like, like salty, tangy because of the tamarind, uh, spicy because you put all these chilies in mm. the gravy. And you don't use green chilies. You use these. They're almost like, you know, Italian peppers, Anaheim peppers kind of uh, wow. chilies. The regular small chilies. So they also have a lot of flavor and they're just not like heat. Okay. And so Make the salad and it is very very oily oh and so the salad is cooked for hours typically in my mother's house the salad was made the previous night because the longer you let it sit the more flavorful it becomes wow wow and then so your plate if you're eating a biryani you finish everything else so to answer your question though in my mother's house typically there'll be um, there'll be a fish fry, there'll be a shrimp with onions, there'll wow. be a chicken curry, there'll be that sort of the meat with the biryani. And then um, on the vegetarian side, there'll be um, a chickpea curry called chole, which I'm sure you're familiar mm -hmm. with. There's always puri and chole. And then there will be uh, a green dish. So it's either it's palak paneer, which is like spinach, mm. um, mm -hmm. as you know. And then um, there'll be a mixed vegetable curry because she, you know, there's usually like mm. something with coconut milk and then she'll add like cauliflower and green beans mm. carrots stuff. and then there might be one or two like south indian specialties so there's like you know raw bananas a very south indian dish mm. or a brinjal which is eggplant they could be like mm -hmm. a stuffed dish so yes this is, someone's this given me a stuffed eggplant recipe yeah. before fabulous yeah so this is sort of the spread but when it comes to finally eating a biryani you're going to sit there and eat it with a side of yogurt and a side of salad Oh, my goodness. So you mentioned before that your grandmother had a sous chef, um, yeah. but she didn't trust her. <laughs> so my question is, um, 
how many how many people like was this just for making food for her family that her grandmother um, that your grandmother had a sous chef for and then again to your mother as well did she have help making all this food and you correct me if I'm wrong but you can't make all of that food every day absolutely right? no absolutely not okay so a couple of different things over there Becky so one is to set the context of you know having a support system in India is very common and very mm. accessible. And so it is actually very unusual um, if somebody were to cook a feast like this and not have help. I mean, I actually haven't mm. heard of it. So my mother, my, my grandmother had her, you know, her staff, her sous chef who was there. And when I say sous chef in the context of India, it's not somebody who, you know, you're seeing it in an American restaurant who's trained mm. to be a sous chef. Right. There's somebody who's going to help you with everything from chopping, prepping, cleaning, dishwashing, uh, tidying up everything. But so, it, but it's going to be household help. This isn't just it, it, just because you have a sous chef. It doesn't mean that you're cooking professionally. No, absolutely. I not. see. Huh. In my family, no. But I, I I I loosely use that term just to sort of tell you that you know it was somebody who knew right. had the skills and knew how to cook, but wasn't trusted by my grandmother. And that person wow. wasn't trained. So you know it was just somebody who picked up right. the skills cooking with my grandmother, but it wasn't like they went to school and then they were trained to become a chef. Or right, right, right. And yet I'm sure your grandmother could have taught the school, like taught a school, like home cooks are, can be yeah. some of the best cooks in the world. So, yeah. And then the same with my mother. So she has, you know, a couple of people who help her make, especially when they're having these big fees, big dinners. Mm. My mother has cooked, you know, I mean, obviously small groups, but anywhere up until like 150 people and hosted wow. them. And so, wow. Sort of depending on, you know, number of people, number of dishes, they'll sort of like call some external help, uh, you know, another family member's cook will pitch in, they'll come in, somebody else will come in to help them. So it just sort of depends on what the need is and how many people they're wow. going to be cooking. And your household. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You, you, you were, you were going to say you said, but something. No, and I think, uh, you know, the one thing I observe now, Becky, is, you know, having moved back to India 20 years later mm. is... Cooking is so simplified in the U.S. in the sense of yeah. I can go to the grocery store. I can buy, you know, if I don't feel like doing any chopping that night, I don't have to. I can get get my pre-cut broccoli, my pre-cut onions, my uh, mm -hmm. pre-cooked pasta. I can make a meal in 15 minutes mm -hmm. and a good meal, you know, with everything that's and I can make it fresh. Like I can buy everything chopped and I can come home mm -hmm. and I can. That mm -hmm. service sort of exists in India. You go to grocery stores and you see it. But I think with a lot of the more sort of traditional households, like my mother's household, right, who've been like hosting and cooking for like decades now, mm. they don't mm. like that. They want everything to be fresh. Like mm -hmm. it had everything has to be made that morning. And mm -hmm. so for a lot of them, the idea of simplifying sort of these other pieces to it does it's it, it, it's not even an option, which is when you really need extra hands to come in and pitch in because otherwise it is impossible to make these meals. Yeah, so just to give you an idea that menu that I just described, yeah. if they were making it for say, um, very as recently as last week, we hosted dinner in my parents' house for about 10 people. Okay. It took four people to make that meal over the course of the entire day. Wow. Wow. And when I say to over the uh, make that meal, it was everybody, you know, somebody was helping with shopping, somebody was helping with washing the dishes, somebody was just cooking the entire day. So it just right. sort of, you know, everybody has their roles and stuff that they this thing, but it is like a little mini restaurant in the back. Wow.
Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So apart from guests with just family, did you have um, your grandmother and then you growing up, did you have a lot of family um, in the home together? Were your dad's brothers um, and sisters, well, really brothers, you know, there, or was it just your nuclear family with your grandmother? What was that like? It was a nuclear family. We actually never stayed with my grandparents. We just visited oh. them all the time. Yeah. Um, again, not uncommon in sort of my parents' generation where a lot of families were starting to move away. Mm. Um, I would say now the mix is maybe 60, 40, 60% nuclear families, 40% still live with their, um, you know, either a mm-hmm. set of parents or somebody is there. But yeah, we just, it was just us. But then we'd see everybody over the weekend, either my mother's side, my father's side, both sides of the family has very strong roots in the city. Mm. And, um, you know, they have a few siblings who moved away to the U.S., who immigrated to the U.S. sometime in the late 70s, early 80s. But for the most part, they're all very much rooted over here. I see. I see. Okay. So you talked about your grandmother and your mother as well going to these um, these markets where everything is fresh every day, going to the butcher, going to the fishmonger. Um, and then you also just mentioned the city that, you know, you had a lot of family who worked in the city. So give me a little bit of like a visual of... Um, of this region and especially where you in particular, your childhood home, was it in more of a rural or suburban area where you could easily access the city? Was it right in the center of the city? What was it like? And was there a lot of agriculture around you? Like, so how long did it take produce to get to these markets? Was it, you know, just, um, you know, cut it in the morning and get it there by 8 a.m.? Or was it like a little bit of a process to um, to ship things in? Tell me just a little bit about that. Give us a visual, I guess. Yeah. So the city that I grew up in, Hyderabad, is a really interesting city. So when we were growing up over here, mm-hmm. you know, this was um, in the 80s, 80s and early 90s, it was um, considered to be sort of, you know, if you think of all of the big towns in India, so the ones that often come to mind are Bombay, Delhi, there's Chennai, Calcutta. So Hyderabad was considered to be the fifth city in this. Oh, wow. Uh, it was sort of, you know, a very cosmopolitan city, but very laid back. Like even now, hmm. Hyderabad culture is nothing opens before 12 in the afternoon. Nothing wow. shuts before like 10 at night. Wow. Okay. Um, it's called the Nawabi culture because, you know, like I was saying, the Nizams, it rules. It's very like laid back. Everybody takes their time to do stuff. And here I am, drop off my daughter at school at 830. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I have to pick her up at 1230. What can I get done? Nothing. Except I can go with my mother for a couple of hours. So it's a very, very interesting um, city. So like I said, when we were growing up, very laid back. It's, it's a thriving city. So even when I was growing up, it was it, it, it did quite feel very much like big city that was rushed it Mm. felt like a city that was well paced Hmm. where um there was a hustle and the bustle but without like the craziness of like a bombay or the traffic of a bangalore interesting okay but so in terms of you know the landscape itself very city so Mm. we were unfortunately not surrounded by a lot of agricultural land but Mm. luckily close enough where within an hour or two you had access to a lot of like fresh produce so okay yes exactly like you said Um, Things would get cut, harvested, picked early in the morning. And then the markets are bustling by like 10 or 11 in the morning. The markets are stopped. And back when I was growing up, um, it's shocking when you think of how much India has changed, right? When Mm. I was growing up, we didn't have grocery stores. Like you didn't have these like big grocery stores Mm -hmm. like 
you know, Harris Teeter, Safeway Giant. Yeah, you did. You have those now. I mean, you still don't have the same size, but you have the same concept where you can huh. pick your fruit and your um, canned goods and your shelf stuff and your produce, everything under one roof. When mm. we were growing up, you went to these markets which only sold vegetables, for example, right? You just went to the vegetable market. And then you went to the supermarket to buy all of your other stuff. You went to the butcher to buy your lamb. You went to the uh, uh, fishmonger to buy your fish. So, which is what my mother still does to this day. I now just go to one of the big supermarket grocery mm-hmm. stores and get everything under one roof. So, again, this was, you know, a town which had these beautiful little produce markets, very much thriving, very city center very cosmopolitan, like I said, we had, you know, and there's just not the Hindus and the Muslims and the Christians, but even within each of these um, communities. So, for example, within the Hindu community, there's people who had moved here from Gujarat, who are called Gujaratis. So they're very distinct kind of food, which, you know, I don't know if you've heard of like dhokla and like all these little snacky kateplas, all these kinds of foods. No. Then we have a very big Parsi community. So oh. the these moved here, as you're probably familiar with, right? There's a Rashtrian. So there's an incredible um, food community around Parsi food over here. Hmm. And so growing up also, it felt very diverse, very um, cosmopolitan. Hmm. And then what happened somewhere in the last, I would say, 15 years is Hyderabad became one of the tech hubs of the country. Wow. So after Bangalore, Hyderabad is where, you know, Google and Facebook and all of them have their country headquarters over here. Wow. And because the government really pushed to sort of like, you know, really push Hyderabad into um, growth and development. So what mm. that did, again, brought in a lot more people from across the country. And so now it's even more bustling. There's like all kinds of food. There's all sorts of communities over here experimenting with different cuisines. So it's wow. not on par with like a Bombay, which is like another level, but it is very thriving city. Um, wow. Access to everything, great agricultural land close by. And the state that we're from mm-hmm. is um, considered to be one of the it's rice bowl of India. So lots of paddy tree, lots of paddy. Oh, really? Um, so the coastal areas, tons and tons. So like I was saying earlier, my mother comes from the coastal area, which mm. is where they mostly eat rice and seafood. And my husband comes from the inland, which is where they use a lot of millets and wheat and a lot of chicken and um, lamb. Interesting. Okay. That's just fascinating. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's great. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you lived in the U.S. as well, um, which gives you a very objective, I think, view of both cultures. But um, mm-hmm. just tell us a little bit like about the trajectory of your life. Um, when did you have you moved other places as well? Why did you go? Just give us a little bit of a bird's eye view, like just map out your life for us a little bit to this point. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, I um, I grew up in, in I grew up in Hyderabad. I was here till I was twenty one, mm. and a very typical route that a lot of people in my generation took, and maybe even now. And when I say my generation, um, this was about twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Is once they finished with college, would go most likely to the U.S and get a master's degree, which is exactly mm. what I did. I um, have an undergraduate degree in engineering and then decided to study market research and corporate communications and then went to um, school in LA and then got my master's degree over there and then went on to spend the next 10 years <clears throat> working in advertising and market research. So I'd work wow. for like a bunch of agencies and then eventually tech companies, really doing a lot of different kinds of research and understanding either, you know, from a from a product research standpoint mm. or a, con- a customer slash consumer research standpoint, so did a lot of that. 
And again, this is a very common trap for a lot of families who have a huge emphasis on education. Mm. And uh, both my paternal and maternal side were like that. They're all like very highly qualified doctors, engineers. And mm-hmm. so it, it wasn't even like there was no other choice. It was like, okay, you're done. Now mm-hmm. you have to go and get a, a postgraduate degree in something. Mm. Mm. Both mm. of my parents both have their postgraduate degree. So for them, it was like, okay, so you have to do it. So you're going to go to the US and then what you're going to study. That's sort of like the, on- the only choice you have is what you're going to study. Wow. Not how much you study. And I so... I did that, worked for 10 years, and then realized, Becky, that my passion has always been in food. Mm. And, you know, it's also not uncommon back then in India, right, 20 years ago, where your course, both education and profession, were pretty much guided by like a few factors, which is, okay, you study engineering or you become a doctor, you can study law, or maybe you become a writer of some sort. But a lot of these other industries weren't very... um, easily accepted and mm. not so much so there wasn't any stigma around it it was just around like how lucrative is it right, right. like I'm really going to like quote unquote settle down by being a chef at a restaurant right 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 and so it wasn't something that and uh, my maternal uncle my mother has three wonderful brothers one of um, whom inspired me to write this book one mm-hmm. of whom is an incredibly inspiring um, cook he's a mm. banker but he loves to cook Mm. And he told me very recently that he aspired to become a chef and he actually got an application from a um, culinary school. Mm. But my grandfather very quickly shut it down saying, you know, my grandfather was a doctor and he said, you know, how can you become a chef? Like you're expected to do more than that, which Mm. was really sad because if you think of the incredible diversity of Indian cuisine, Mm And how much could have been done with it? I I, mm-hmm. I I wish that, you know, people had the awareness that they do now in terms of like what a rich and amazing mm-hmm. contribution you can make as a chef. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so um, I never had that exposure either. So mm-hmm. when I finally turned 30, I remember, right, I, th- I was turning 30 that year and I said, this is it. Like, I really, really want to do something in food. And again, not having been exposed to food as much outside of the setting of our home where, you know, we just love to cook. Mm-hmm. Quite know professionally what that meant. So, do you think? Can I can I ask something about this journey? Do you think that if you had stayed in India and always, um, like, what I'm asking, I guess, is, do you think that you took your family and your region's cooking for granted, and you didn't really realize that until you came to the U.S. and you were like, "Whoa, the food I ate in India was amazing," and my grandmother and my mother are, you know, world class cooks um or do you think that it was something else like um internal just oh i I never really loved engineering i just kind of did it like what do you think it was that made you realize whoa food is very very important to me do you think you realized that when you were young and would you ever have realized that if you hadn't left india i think i might have and i think Mm. it's more the where you know I still remember so back in the 80s they used to get these magazines there were like two or three different magazines that my mother would subscribe Mm -hmm. to these Mm -hmm. women's right and I still remember that one time I was probably like six or seven when Mm. I made this grated carrot salad which was disgusting but (laughs) I still remember that you know like that's my first memory of actually making something so Mm. I've always loved it but but ironically I was a very picky eater so there's very few things that I appreciated and I think only when I sort of you know 
was well into my sort of like late teens, early 20s. And again, Becky, I think also the culture is such, Becky, where in Indian families, where again, the emphasis is education. You're mm-hmm. not really given an opportunity to like, you know, we had like, I learned music, for example, right? Like mm-hmm. I learned music because I learned how to sing or my brother learned other stuff. But those were considered like, okay, sort of, oh, they enrich your personality and they mm, give you like- Their hobbies. Their hobbies, like, Cooking was never, it was like, it's part of your day. Like you cook every day, you cook three meals a day. So it was never glamorous. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't ever even thought of as a hobby. Like now I look at Instagram and I'm like, oh my goodness. Like Mm. people are professions out of cutting onions. It's kind of ridiculous, you Mm. know, like. Mm. Mm. It's on a pedestal now. Oh my goodness. It's too much. But back Mm -hmm. then it was just a way of life. We ate because Mm. we loved to eat and was a very rich and diverse culinary um, sort of culture but outside of that it was never the thing so I don't think it was as much that I had left home I think it finally had time to think about it mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. that food can be more than something you just have to eat on a daily basis there's so much art and science behind it and mm-hmm. so I did two things I went to baking school and then I mm. went to nutrition school mm. and both in the years, U.S. you were still in L.A. Sport. I was no. So by then I'd moved to San Francisco. I finished grad school in LA. I did a brief stint on the East Coast. And then my husband and I moved to um, San Francisco in 2007, I think. So we were there for, yeah, we were there for a while. So um, I first did no. So I went to uh, Paris and went to baking school for a couple of months. It was sort of like an accelerated baking school program. So I was at the the Cordon Bleu for a couple of months. I did that. And then I went back the U.S. did a bunch of different things in sort of, you know, catering, food, sweets, all of that stuff. And then uh, many years later, really, I was ta- I was diagnosed with a gluten intolerance. Mm. And at which point I decided that I also wanted to understand the science behind food. Hmm. Because you know, I had so many restrictions in terms of what I could and could not eat. And it was it was really hard for me back then. I was also like on a journey to get pregnant and I had a lot of mm-hmm. issues with that. And so I think for me, sort of, you know, understanding the science behind food also became very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so I went to nutrition school for a couple of years. Wow. And I did that. And I came out and I consulted for a few years. And so, you know, that is really the second decade of my career in my 30s is really when I started to be fascinated with food, not just mm. from like what is on the dinner table, but like how is it made? How does it impact our bodies? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to me culturally? What does it mean in terms of how I'm connected to my roots via food? Mm-hmm. Right. So as you went through this process, was it something that made you closer to your family because you could go back and talk to them about, you know, the history of their food and, you know, again, how close you felt to your roots and something like that? Or was it something that distanced you from them because maybe they weren't supportive of this, um, of this path? Like, why aren't you using your engineering degree? Was there either one happen? I I would say the former and, you know, Mm. I mean, I've always been very close to my family, Becky. So, Mm. um, but I think, again, like I've been saying that within with a lot of, you know, traditional Indian families who have a big emphasis on education, mm-hmm. you have to prove to them that you've done something meaningful with your mm. education and then subsequently with your career. So I think for me, once I had felt like I demonstrated checking off mm. a couple of the boxes, like, you mm. know, the degree that they were keen that I have or like the job mm. that they mm. were so excited about. Mm. I think once a couple of those boxes were ticked off, Mm. I think everybody kind of got comfortable in mm-hmm. 
me wanting to sort of seek my own identity in the food space mm-hmm. versus as a function of what i had naturally fallen into over the the decade prior mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no that makes perfect sense it's like you gave yourself permission <laughs> by um yeah. yeah yeah you did what was necessary <laughs> But, you know, the interesting thing, Becky, to add to that is that I think there is still a certain amount of casualty associated with, ca- I, mean, I don't know if I'm saying the right word, but correct me if I'm wrong. But I think, you know, when I talk about food, right, oftentimes, like, especially my Indian friends or family members will say, oh, it's a hobby or it's a project, right? Mm-hmm. Versus food for me is my career. It has been my career for the last decade now in different mm-hmm. ways. It's been in the way of like, you know, when I was trying to cook for small groups to when I became a nutrition consultant to -hmm. when I worked for a nonprofit working on um, sustainable food supply chain. Mm -hmm. So it has been my career in different capacities or now to, you know, when I heirloom. But it's been interesting. A certain sort of like casualness, maybe, maybe not. I don't want to be. Yeah. You know, it's where it's like, oh, I think unless you're like running a restaurant, like you have Mm -hmm. this. Like, oh, my God, I opened this like restaurant and I have this like chain of grocery stores. That seriousness still to me is not there. When right. When you say what you do, you don't get the response where people raise their eyebrows and go, oh, you know, you get, oh, like, you know, with the oh. <laughs> the, the yeah. furrowed eyebrow instead, <laughs> you know. But I'm like confused and more than confused, what I find is sort of like, oh, that sounds like so much fun. Like, that uh, sounds like I'm like, no, it's it's actually super fun, but it's not, you know, it's more than that. And I think yeah. that sometimes to me, I'm still like, wow, I feel like food and the industry has evolved so much over the last couple of decades, but there's still this little bit of like, oh, it's not as serious as something else. Right. Maybe. So I, I want to, um, I've been wondering something like in the back of my mind, since we've started talking about how seriously your family took education and things like that. And for your mother, and especially your grandmother, because it sounds like your grandmother honestly spent her life cooking, like that yes. is how she spent her days was cooking. Do you feel that that was respected um, and appreciated? Like, is it almost one of those things, if you do it for your family, then it's respected by your family, but as a job, it's not respected as a job? Or do you think that all of her work and effort and labor was um, minimized for most of her life. Mm. No, it was the former. And what's really interesting is though, to set the context, right? Mm -hmm. If you think of my grandmother's generation, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. where she was cooking all of this somewhere in the 60s and the 70s, women in that generation, mostly in the context of India, were homemakers. Mm -hmm. So what was expected from the, of them was that they were cooking at home, mm-hmm. right? Versus if you compare that 50 years later to my generation, I'm expected to be doing so much more than that. Like not for a second did anybody in my family ever think that I would only be cooking or I'd be a homemaker. Mm-hmm. So I think also what happens is the expectations out of uh, the expectations in terms of what they expect you to be doing with that skill set has changed enormously in the last two generations so in my grandmother's mm-hmm. generation it was like okay she cooks and she's an excellent cook and she feeds everybody in the community fabulous but I think for, if I were to do it, it it would have to be something bigger than cooking for my family to get that mm-hmm. same kind of respect that she did I'd have to be like cooking for a community or cooking running a restaurant mm-hmm. running something really mm-hmm. fabulous because I think the expectation is that you're 
I mean, my grandmother was actually very well educated. I mean, back in mm. the day, she had an undergraduate degree, but mm. uh, it was like you know, you're more educated, you have more exposure, you have more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Why would you not be doing more than mm. just cooking? Do you think that's a net positive thing or a net negative thing for women? I think it's a net positive thing mm. because I think what it does is. I mean, for me personally, it would, mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's like both sides of the argument for mm-hmm. this, right? Is I think it just makes you want to do more. And I think it, especially mm-hmm. if you have the opportunity to do it, why not? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like because of that ambition and because of that push and because wanting to prove that I could do something more with food than just, you know, what I've historically done, which is I love cooking and I love hosting, mm-hmm. is why I'm here today, which is why I was able to like start a small business that mm-hmm. focuses on. Yeah. 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 It's so, it's so interesting because your small business is, um, it's a business that honors, you know, the life of people like your grandmother and seeks to preserve what they gave us, you know? Um, and it is interesting though, that at the same time, we're almost not respecting that lifestyle anymore. And I, I, I don't, I don't know what I think. I mean, I wasn't someone who wanted to um, be a purely stay-at-home mom, although I have spent um, years at home with my kids. I was doing wedding photography. I was doing this. And I, for me, it's a very positive thing. Um, but at the same time, I don't, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. And I'm, I'm thankful for your take on it. Um, and I'm also thankful for the work that you are doing to honor those lives that were dedicated really to cooking day in and day out when there weren't things like, you know, packaged um, broccoli in the grocery store, like you mentioned earlier, Exactly. you know, you know. Um, So tell us a little bit, like you were professionally getting really, um, I mean, like you said, you have like a huge breadth of experience in the food world. You've worked as a nutritionist with marketing. You said, um, you just said something else that you did that I was fascinated by. I worked in, so I worked for a nonprofit called Fair Trade. Right, with, right. Yeah, yeah. So I did that for a couple of years. Right. You've, you know, trained for desserts and pastry. And then, I mean, your your breadth um, of, of, of experience is huge. And then at some point, you decided to write a family cookbook. So tell us about that, like that decision. Yeah. Yeah, so this actually happened right after I finished um, nutrition school. So mm-hmm. I, like I was saying, right, so I kind of understood the food science. I was very fascinated by it. And I was pregnant at the same time. So I had my son, and <clears throat> which is when, you know, I, I used to cook a lot back then. And I think once I had my son, it was a little bit of a change in context because I wasn't just cooking meals that I was familiar with because mm. when it came him I was trying to introduce new foods that I thought he should be introduced to right so hmm. for example like when I cook I don't use a lot of cinnamon in my food I'd use a cinnamon stick but when it came to my son Shivi's foods I'd always be curious to see if I could add a pinch of cinnamon in something because I wanted his taste buds to evolve and for him to have hmm. a very um, um, sort of you know 
expanded palate. And so that's when I started thinking, okay, what is it about how we ate that makes me feel so connected to my food that I can sort of pass on to my son as well? So mm-hmm. like I mentioned previously, my mother has three brothers, one of whom is a scientist. He lives in the East Coast. And he, over the last 40 years that he's been in Baltimore, has written a Word document where he has written every single recipe that my grandmother has passed down to him. And because he's a scientist and he's very, very methodical, there's all the details that you would ever want in the document. (laughs) Every year, Becky, he would circulate it to the kids in the family, right? Kids. Wow. And he'd be like, take a look at this. I made this. And he's like so interested in food and cooking and all of that stuff. So Mm. that's when, where, you know, when Shivi was born was when I started really like, paying a lot more attention to that recipe book. And I'd always mm. had, but again, you know, you sort of fall into your routine of like, okay, I like these four dishes. I know how to make them. I'm going to mm-hmm. make them. Like, <laughs> single without kids. We'd eat out a ton. And once I had Shivi, a combination of wanting to feed him more sort of like, you know, how we ate as kids, combined mm. with the fact that we were just cooking a lot more at home and staying in more, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. that really started to dive deeper into this um, book. And so the long Mm -hmm. story short is, over the years, my uncle had been already by then telling me, do something with this book because I was very, very into it. Mm -hmm. And so when I had Shivi, I said, you know what, this is such a great opportunity. I am going to write a sample book, for the lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And um, I had I had taken this program. It was called the 30 Day Passion Project. In 30 days, you work on a passion project. For me, it was making this cookbook. And so I'm telling photography but I was like you know what I'm going to take the pictures I made 25 recipes from this word document wow in 31 days in 31 days wow and then I had this little back in the day there used to be a publisher called blurb and so yes I went to I've blurb. used blurb uh-huh blurb. in our wedding photography days we did that yeah. sometimes so I used Blurb and then I designed a little cookbook and I loved it. And I came out of it feeling so energized. And I was mm. like, this is what I want to do. I want to pass on something to my kids where they feel really connected to their family's culinary heritage. Mm. And in a way mm. that feels very aspirational because that was a really big piece for me, uh, Becky. And I think that's also very important mm. as I thought mm. about how I wanted to design heirloom, right? Because mm. I have seen a lot of family cookbooks. It's not uncommon at all in India. When you get married, my mother didn't, but a lot of families will give you this little like handwritten spiral bound cookbook that Mm. they will give, take with you. So you can go start making those recipes in your own home. I see. And for me, I wanted this book to be an elevated version of that. Yeah. It wasn't spiral bound and handwritten, but I wanted beautiful food photographs. So I worked with this incredibly talented photographer called Kimberly Hasselbrink, Mm. who, uh, sort of shuttles back and forth between San Francisco and Portland <clears throat> to do all of the food photography. Then I worked with an incredibly talented editor. So I used to work at Facebook decades ago. Oh, and wow. Jesse was actually a wonderful writer and he left and he became, an, he started his own publishing company. And so Jesse sort of took me up as a challenge. He was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to help you write this book. So wow. Jesse helped me with all of the writing and then Kimberly with the photography. And we had Adam, we, we, we worked with a band of like some very, very talented people. I literally can take no credit. Mm. <laughs> 
you know that's how the book came to life and for mm-hmm. me that is what i wanted and i'd love to send you a copy because i'm so proud of what we made and because to me i was like this is the kind of book i want to give my kids where they feel proud of their indian heritage and yeah. they look at the pictures and they're like oh my god that looks so good i want to make that dish yes and i want to i want to focus in on this for a minute because there are a lot of options out there you know you can go to shutterfly there blurbs not there anymore but there's a lot of options about where you can get um a book printed you know and dig in a little bit more to me you said you wanted it to be aspirational and elevated um why was that important to you and how has that helped you shape your own business yeah so it was important to me because you know like i said i think when you typically think about see i've always considered myself a home cook right mm. even though i've done a lot of different things in the industry i've never considered myself to be a professional of any sort when it came to cooking i love to cook i love to host so mm. and i think there is a big sort of you know difference in identity when you talk about yourself as a home cook versus somebody mm. who's a professional mm-hmm. be it a professional you know chef at a restaurant be a professional cookbook writer be a professional recipe developer there's almost like sort of you know this elite status which is given to the other bucket mm. and in the home cook i mean at least thanks to instagram i think there's so much more access to sort of right. you know the yeah. folks and beautiful imagery and because of smartphones whatever but i think up until recently there was a big sort of difference in terms of these two worlds yeah. and so from where i perceived it as a home cook was almost like i was one step down because i didn't have the professional chops as they did right mm-hmm. and so for me it became imperative that i elevate people like myself mm-hmm. where they felt like the quality of you know, and it's in the context of a cookbook yeah but the books that they were putting out were on par with the professional high quality published cookbook yeah. that was my yeah. was like you know what i don't want the home cooks are just as talented right. i mean i'm not but i know a lot of people who are who your are grandmother was talented. he was incredible right i mean i know so many immigrant mothers who are so incredibly mm-hmm. talented mm-hmm. and i was i want to elevate their work so even if they are not in the professional food industry where somebody you know mm-hmm. where attend uh, speed press is picking up their book i want the output to feel the same so they feel so yeah. proud of their work and that cookbook can sit on the same shelf maybe yeah. not in a bookshelf maybe one day heirloom will get there not yet but when if i were to self publish a cookbook i wanted to sit next to my otelengis and i wanted to sit next yeah. to my zabs so i feel really proud of what i've made so that was really yeah. the intention of like well, I, how really you know yeah sorry that that was just the intention behind this yes and i think that's so important and it's part of the it's part of what i really like about what you do because i think aesthetics communicates um the value that you put on something right like it's the difference for if um <laughs> this is kind of a cliche example but if you buy a piece of jewelry from Tiffany's which i've never bought before by the way <laughs> but um you know like if you get something in this very elegant packaging you know immediately this is high value um aesthetics just communicates that to us like um good good aesthetics high quality um uh um not ingredients but high quality um materials yeah <laughs> that's the word high quality materials these communicate that something is valuable and i just couldn't agree with you more um and it's part of the reason why i really am behind what you're doing that um 
the recipes and the knowledge and also the sacrifice and the love that the people who gave us um, our family recipes, what they have put into that, that does deserve to be valued like deeply, deeply. And that should be communicated with very high quality aesthetics and um, high quality materials as well. So I appreciate that you that you put both um, into what you offer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I thought about my kids, you know, I grew up in India. I was living in America Mm. and my kids who back then, I mean, they were 4,000 miles away from what I considered home. I mean, I I, I feel like Mm. home is everywhere now, but I wanted them to, you know, when they picked up a cookbook from their shelf to have the same level of enthusiasm to cook from, um, Giara de Laurentiis book as they did from their own ha- family cookbook. Mm, you know? and, what a good and point. I, yeah. And that I knew would only happen, especially with our kids. You know, I have young kids, but the generation that they're growing up in is they're used to like, like you said, packaging is beautiful. Imagery is beautiful. Everything's like, looks so fabulously elevated. Like you're seeing pictures on Instagram and sure, like all of our, um, you know, authors don't have that same level of photography, but that's what we're trying to do is, you know, with beautiful fonts, beautiful layouts, really trying to like customize um, the book covers, have beautiful colors on the covers, try and have different kinds of fabrics on the covers. We do these beautiful illustrated covers for families who are like, you know what, I don't have pictures, but I still want my book to look nice. We've Mm -hmm. designed these beautiful covers. And so the idea is exactly that. Like, you know, I want these children who have a beautiful culinary legacy, Mm -hmm. who have a rich heritage to pull that book out with the same level of enthusiasm as something else that feels to them, perhaps, because, you know, they've grown up in a different mm-hmm. country that feels closer to them, but with the same enthusiasm as, mm. you know, their families did like 30, 40, 50 years mm. ago. Mm. Mm. I, I love that. And I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't be um, like, I'm really rooting for you. <laughs> I think it's so um, important what you're doing. And uh, really, I do think we owe it to um, the people who came before us. Um, so I just think it's wonderful. And the covers that you create are stunning. Um, we'll include a picture in the show notes. And also, when it's funny when I um, you sent me a PDF of the recipe, and it must be a PDF from your book, right? Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is really nice. And my first thought, because I forgot, because normally, you know, I get recipes from from home cooks or whatever that haven't yeah. written their own cookbook. I thought, yeah. oh, I, I don't think I can use this. Um, it's from a professional cookbook. That was literally my first thought. And then I was yeah. like, oh, that's right. She wrote her it's own professional first. cookbook. <laughs> so you're welcome to use it. Yeah. So it's just so fun. And, you know, the thing that I love about what we're doing is one of the things that I want to be really intentional about is bring forward books that historically, if you were to think about, okay, this person needed an agent and they needed a publisher, Mm -hmm. wouldn't have gotten that sort of attention. I want to give those books attention. So for example, one of the books we're writing now is a family that moved to the U from, actually they live in Canada now, but moved from Syria. And it's Mm -hmm. such a beautiful and deeply personal book of, Mm -hmm. you know, her mother's family recipes from their kitchen in Syria. And to me, those are the stories I want to tell. Not just, I mean, I, I, I want them, I want those books to be written for the families themselves. Again, you know, with the intention of like preserving your culinary legacy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I want those stories to be told for the rest of us. So, you know, we learn through food more about culture more about um you know families how they lived how they've escaped you know they've been refugees how they've lived in like 
areas with a lot of political strife so for yeah. me that's the thing. it's like these these recipes tell such beautiful stories of like sitting under the olive tree in your nona's gr- kitchen in uh, a sicilian town mm. and like i want those stories and i want yes. heirloom to like write these books and like yes. highlight authors who otherwise might not have had the same opportunities. Yes, I think that's wonderful. And a word that comes up in almost every episode is the word resilience. And I think that recipes have a way of communicating um, to families how resilient their ancestors yeah. were, um, because they tell the beginning, the middle and the end of the story. They tell the beginning where, you know, someone was safe and uh, happy in their in their homeland, and either they had you know a dream to do something different, or they were forced in many cases to a different homeland, and then you know there was struggle and there was strife, and then you know at at the end of the story again, you're eating the same dish um, with different memories attached to it, and so um, yeah, I think food has this power really to to talk about the resilience of families and what a what I mean, what more trait do we want for any of our kids exactly. than that trait? And and you have the opportunity to share that, you know, in these books. So I and and beautifully as well. So it, it really is such a wonderful thing that you're doing. Thank you. Mm. So tell us, um, tell us about so well, I have I have so many questions <laughs> about um about your company and and how you create these amazing books. But first, um, just for people who are listening, let's just be super clear on what it is exactly that you offer. So what do you offer your customers? Yeah, great question. Thank you for asking that. So mm-hmm. Heirloom is a design service that helps you design your very own cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And there's two different ways in which you do it. So we've built our own proprietary software. So, you know, like you're saying, like you said, right, like you go to Shutterfly and you design cards and stuff, uh, but also possibly cookbooks. What Heirloom does is exclusively has a software that we have specific templates to design your very own cookbook. So the self-design process is you go in, we have a recipe box, you upload your recipes, you pick one of the layouts that we already have designed, and then the software, which is where the magic comes in, converts Mm. all of those recipes into a cookbook. And then um, we have something called a cookbook editor tool. So you go in there, you flip through the pages, review all of your recipes, make Mm. whatever edits you need to. If you're happy with it, you send it in for review and approval, and then we send it off to the printer. So that's Mm -hmm. one way in which you use it. The second way in which you use it is what we recently started, which is a full design um, service, where, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of families who are like, listen, I have a journal full of handwritten recipes. Mm -hmm. I don't have patience to sit down and like transcribe all of this take my book and make me a recipe book. And so that's where full design comes in. We'll take your book and then we will um, convert all of your recipes to a digital file, upload it to our recipe box, design the book for you. Obviously, this comes with a lot of customization. So, you know, there's Mm -hmm. many more layouts you can use, color combinations, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then um, we design books for you. So it's basically a design software that helps you make your very own personalized cookbook. Mm. Amazing. Okay. So let me ask some follow-up questions. Um, so how, I'm, I'm just curious from the development standpoint of your business, um, how did you find someone to write the software? So um, I worked with the team, actually, coincidentally, they're in India, which, uh, mm. you know, it worked out really well now that I'm here. Mm. But I mean, there's 
different development teams all over uh, Becky. There's just so much incredible talent now, right? Mm-hmm. So we spoke with a bunch of different vendors. So I was working with an amazing um, design team in San Francisco, who wow. I found by just googling design team San Francisco, and they were so wonderful. They helped me sort of uh, create the first iteration of Heirloom. Through them, I was connected to the development team. I started working with the development team. We built out the software and we're super excited because today we launched the second iteration of our website. So we went through a lot. Yeah, and I'm so excited for you to go check it out because, you know, as with, I think, with a lot of startups, right? Like you evolve so much as a brand and your customers seek so much more from you as a brand. And Mm -hmm. so where we were last year, Elum's just about a year old. And where we were last year is, you know, we put together what I thought then was like, oh my God, this is such a cool website. And then over time, as we interacted more and more with customers Mm. and realized their needs had changed and how we communicated, right? Like in terms of what does a design concept mean? What Mm. is designing your cookbook mean? What do you mean by you have templates? Like so many questions kept coming up over and over again that we really went back in, updated everything. And I'm so proud of what we've built. So I hope you get a chance to go check it out. And um, the idea is really, you know, People who are want to do this on their own, want to take their time, have multiple contributors, create a book all on their own, there's a tool for them. Or people who are like, I don't have the time and I want you to do it and I want a book in hand in the next three months, we're here to help them with that too. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So I guess that would be another important question. Who, like, who would you consider your ideal client? Who is the person that should use Heirloom? Yeah. So typically what we've seen is it's people who are somewhere within the ages of 35 to 50, Mm. where, um, you know, you've gained sufficient knowledge in the kitchen where you're excited to sort of, you know, you're like, okay, I have these favorite dishes. Here are things I make for my family. Mm. Typically Mm. tend to have kids, young to old. That age has varied. Mm. Um, I would say lean more towards people with older kids where they're like, okay, my kids are getting older. They're going to leave home soon. Mm -hmm. I want to give them beautiful cookbook that they can take away with them. That mm-hmm. said, we've had lots of really other interesting people um, use our service. So for example, um, Ashley made a book for her mother, Gail, for Gail's 60th. So mm. all of Gail's friends contributed a recipe and we made a beautiful cookbook for her. Um, wow. So that's just a you know fun way in which somebody who's not really doing it to preserve their own culinary legacy, but are doing it for somebody else has done it. Mm. Um, we've, we just have a client who is doing it as she's a food blogger and mm-hmm. she's using heirloom to create party favors for her wedding. So we're wow. creating these cookbooks using her recipes that are going to go on the table for each of her guests at the wedding. So it kind of depends. Um, Becky, I think that's the fun part about building a company, you know, is like Mm. you think there is this audience that is your audience and then suddenly people come out of somewhere just to make things really interesting for you. So I think that's just the best part. Oh my goodness, like I'm going to individually pack these books that are going to go in a wedding. How special is that? So I think, you know, we're at a point where like, okay, we have this, what I think is a great software or other Mm -hmm. great service, but how, who uses it and how they use it is just going to evolve over time. So, and that, you know, I'm somebody who just loves saying yes and trying and experimenting with new things. Oh, I love that. I just feel like it's a fun place to be in because, you know, we're just trying to figure out ourselves too of like, okay, we have our core audience, but where else can we really bring service? Right. 
Yeah, I love that that you said I'm just somebody who loves saying yes. I think that's such it's very important in an entrepreneur. When we um shot weddings, my sister-in-law who I worked with would say that all the time. You never say no. Yeah. You always say yes. Now, sometimes there's going to be some parameters and there's always a price, you know, but um it's always a yes and I I yeah. love that attitude. That is so great Thank and so <laughs> so customer focused. So um uh speaking of price, a price point. Um first of all, do you guys do the printing also? And if so, is it, you know, um, like what range of books, like what number of books, um, like a minimum and a maximum would you do um, for for a client? And then what, yeah, what type of price points are you looking at? Obviously, you have two very, very different services there. Yeah, yeah. So, um in terms of minimum and maximum one of the best things about moving back to india has been that we've been able to identify multiple supply printer supply chains so mm. set up operations so now we're able to do as little or as less as one book and there's no maximum it just depends on how many books a client needs and wow. maximum is obviously the more you print the better from a price standpoint right. which leads me to answer your next question is so one book typically if you're just doing a single book um we typically try and sell this in packages of 3 because that's the most economical so it's $100 mm-hmm. a book mm-hmm. and uh most of the cost actually goes down to the printer becky and it's become oh, yeah. a lot more so you know when we first started we had a $500 minimum because our printer would not do anything right. less than $500 yeah. and so now you can you can you can get an order for as little as $125 that's and amazing. in terms of you know when you said um self service there is no fee attached to the design software all of that really yeah wow and, um i mean some of it you know there is a little bit of an added fee that goes we absorb into the printing cost but there is wow. no fee such for the software in itself wow yeah. wow that's hugely um hugely yeah, so affordable yeah hugely affordable and you know where you know it's a capital expense which we hope over time will be able to like make back through multiple different sales but the mm-hmm. idea right right now is like it's free there's no and you know it's interesting again the evolution of a business is such when we first started we have a use we had a usage fee we had a subscription fee we've removed all of that because ultimately what we realized and heard from customers is that they don't want these like oh i have to use it within a certain number of months i have to pay a certain mm. amount of money if i don't mm-hmm. use it there's a lot of free content out there right so we didn't want to make people feel like all of a sudden they have to pay for something that they weren't quite sure how much they would use so we've mm. removed all of that and you just pay at the end of it for a printer fee and then there's obviously a little bit of a um um usage fee that we absorb into that so there's no like added fee for right, print right like so you just well and is- i i apologize yeah. go ahead everything is what No, no, go ahead. I, I was just wrapping up that sentence. Oh, I was just going to say another advantage to that for your customers, and you've mentioned this twice now, and it's something I hadn't considered um, before we started talking today, is that um, because you don't charge anything extra to use the software, you can easily have multiple contributors to a book. So you really could do um, like a family book where everyone puts in, you know, their favorite recipe or what they remember, or you know, I think about my husband's aunt. um who all came from Palestine and they each had their own specialty you know and how amazing would it have been um there's there's only two left but um how amazing would it have been if all of them got together and kind of put their specialty in for for those of us now um who want to make these so that's a really i think that's um 
it's great that you don't have to pay to use the software, but I think uh, an unexpected benefit is that you can have multiple contributors. Um, Which is amazing. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're just wrapping up a book for a family. It's actually an Indian family that married within several different communities. So they had close to 31 people contributing to their uh, cookbook, right? And wow. so for the first wow. time, we actually did like a little family tree at the beginning of the book. And they used our full service um, uh, feature because they just had too much, too mm -hmm. many recipes, too many people, all of that stuff. But to me, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so amazing that we're able to get 31 people to contribute recipes to a cookbook. And it's still wow. one family. And, you know, that it's so deeply meaningful to them and they marry different ethnicities, different cultures, and everybody's beautifully coexisting on the family tree page in the front of the book. So I love that. I really love that. That's amazing. So, and because there's no maximum that people can print, there's really, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's actually no distinction between you and basically a publishing company, right? I mean... Someone could take this and then and then sell their cookbooks as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what we are still working on setting up is our distribution channels. But of course, mm -hmm. e-commerce, I mean, you know, we're, we're working on setting up our own bookstore on our website. Oh, wow. Uh, slowly get stuff up on Amazon for certain clients. I mean, uh, we, we, we still haven't gotten into physical distribution. And honestly, Becky, it's not something I've considered just because I've you know, when you and I just really wanted to put most of my resources and time into um, mm -hmm. building for itself. But I think there is a huge opportunity over there for exactly what you said. The person who's like wants to have full control over their um, content, who wants to self-publish, potentially has a reasonable marketing channel already as a function of being, you know, some kind of a food blogger or food influencer, whatnot. And they could absolutely use heirloom to bring that book to life. Right. We could create a storied recipe cookbook. Yeah. How cool that, would that be? I could sell on my website. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You could. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So how are you able to manage um, such an affordable price? So just so for people are listening, like um, a lot, a lot of people know that my family took like a 12 day trip to Germany for spring break, which was amazing. And, um, you know, I, I, I am a professional photographer. So I I take a lot of travel photos and I created a book for my family, which was um, like very close to the maximum number of pages. It was 98 pages. Um, wow. It was from a consumer printer here in the U.S., um, not Shutterfly. I wanted a higher end. But um, the total price was $272. Um, now First I got it. Yes. Now I got it on a 40% sale, but this was like a book with just images, very simply designed. Um, and so I really do want to emphasize like the prices that you're offering are very, very good. And thank you for saying that because, you know, I think oftentimes there is still a barrier to entry when you think of price because I think, mm. you know, people think, oh, we could just go to the local store and do it. But I think where we are coming from, from we're using like this professional designers who design right. these books. There's illustrations. There's, you know, we've worked on every single font, the size, the color, the placement, like a lot of work has gone into it. But at yeah. the same time, for me, you know, I always say with heirloom, right, my intention behind it was to make it accessible and inclusive. So right. anybody, regardless of whether you're a home chef, or maybe eventually a professional chef would be interested in the product, right. it has to be 
exclusive. You could have come from Syria, from India, from Tokyo, from wherever part of the world. You yeah. have to visit. And I want it to be price inclusive because right. I want wow. to make sure that the home chef is not turned away from making a book because it's so expensive that it doesn't make sense for them to do that. Right. Do it. Right. But like you said, still elevated. So how we do it is the magic. And, yes, uh, uh, <laughs> it is. Also, you know, again, another blessing is that I've been able to set up some operations in India, which really, really helps us um, keep the price down. Amazing. You, um, one last question. One last question before we wrap it up. And thank you again so much for your time today. Um, you have two children, that's correct? Mm-hmm, that's right. Okay, tell us a little about them. Yeah, so I have a seven-year-old Shivi, a boy, and I have mm-hmm. a three-year-old Leela, a girl. Um, mm-hmm. They couldn't be any more different. <laughs> and I think for me, the most striking difference is their interest or mm. one of their lack of interest in food. Mm. Um, my older one is very, very, very conservative when it comes to food. He basically eats all of three things. <laughs> and uh, my younger one, on the other hand, is so adventurous with food. She won't eat a lot of quantity, but she just loves to try new things. And especially in the context of us having moved to India, mm-hmm. I was actually hoping my older picky eater would be like, okay, this looks interesting. I could try it. Nothing like his palate has not changed. Versus my younger one has just been so adventurous with even things like fruit. So there's a lot of tropical fruit that mm. grows in India. Mm-hmm. And so she's very adventurous with fruits. She's very adventurous with spices. Like she has a higher spice tolerance. She's very interested in Indian sweets. Hmm. And um, as you know, many of you probably know, Indian sweets are very different from sort of, you yeah. know, bake, like the patisseries slash bakery sweets we get in the US. Mm-hmm much sweeter which is probably why she loves them Mm. she has a major sweet tooth but it's just really really cool to see a three-year-old's palate sort of evolve culturally just given where we are and what she has exposure to and you know occasionally they still really enjoy like she will enjoy a slice of pizza or pasta but Mm. what I'm really trying to do with her is like make her as adventurous as possible with Indian food by Mm -hmm. introducing her to like biryani and like lentil dals and like Mm. curry and the rotis and parathas and all of these things. Mm, who wouldn't love those? Right. <laughs> really, all of this. Oh, I'm hungry for lunch. And um, I'm, yeah, any one of those sounds great to me at the yeah. moment. So, well, just in light of that, especially the difference between the two of them, um, my last question was going to be, how does having um, your two children, um, your daughter and your son, affect the way that you view um, you know, food in general, but also you've kind of addressed that, particularly this business um, of making family cookbooks. Yeah, I feel even more strongly about it than mm-hmm. I did when I started. So I started Heirloom uh, right at the beginning of COVID. So my daughter, who's now three, was about six months old. And mm-hmm. in the middle of our home in San Francisco, we that was during lockdown, we weren't leaving. That's when I started the business, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was always very centered around family mm-hmm. and around the foundation that families must preserve everything that's been passed down to them. Mm-hmm. Not just homes, jewelry, art, money, whatever that inheritance might be. But just as much and maybe even more importantly, 
the stories and the recipes that come with food. Mm-hmm. And as I watch my kids grow, and I think, you know, like I just mentioned with Leela being an adventurous eater and actually showing interest in my culinary heritage, I feel even more strongly in not just chronicling and archiving my own family recipes, but giving every family the ability to do that. Because Mm -hmm. maybe it's not their own kids who are interested. It could be their nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. It could be um, cross-cultural marriage. It could be, Mm -hmm. you know, a multi-generational family that's living together. Mm -hmm. There's just so many different ways in which I think families would benefit from preserving their culinary legacy. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, like I said, you know, I think of it as one piece of our inheritance. Mm -hmm. And when you think of food I feel like there's just so many memories it's so sensorial like every time I think of a certain dish I go back in time to you know I think of my grandmother sitting on that floor with her wooden block and blade on top of it chopping away or I think of you know she had this red cylinder like back in the day in India you didn't have unlimited gas that came into your house a lot of houses still don't right like some of the Mm -hmm. older homes but they used to have be these um, red cylinders that used to sit next to your stove. And that was there. And I could smell like all of these beautiful spices and the, the freshly made ghee and the fried onions that went on the biryani. And I think it's just such an mm. incredible thing to inherit from your family. And so mm-hmm. with cookbooks and with heirloom, my wish for many, many families is that, you know, they don't overlook how important their culinary legacy is and mm. really do something meaningful to it and creating a book that feels you know I always use this word with heirloom aspirational because Mm -hmm. I want it to feel aspirational compared to all of their other fancy cookbooks that they have in their bookshelves so that really you know I just feel so much more strongly about it and I really Mm -hmm. wish for many many families to utilize our service yeah, I, I honestly wish that as well. A lot of my guests are actually trying to reclaim a heritage that's their parents actually don't know it. Because a lot of times their parents came to the U.S. as immigrants and didn't actually have time to um, pass on these skills. And so a lot of times, at least with my podcast guests, it's actually two generations back that they're trying to access and trying to, like you said, chronicle. And so I think what you're doing is so important because the time for people to get into the kitchen with those who hold the wisdom and the knowledge and the recipes to their culinary heritage, that time is very short. It's very fleeting. Um, What you're doing is very special. And it really meets a need that is very a very real need, I think. So I congratulate you. I'm rooting for you. I'm excited for you. I encourage all of my listeners to look for your contact information um, and to see pictures of your books and to try your services. Thank you so much, Becky. It means so much to me that you're you know, you're a fan of our work and Mm -hmm. that you're um, supporting us. So that is so meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. So thank you. And I had so much fun chatting with you. I just love, you know, the storied recipe. It's like every recipe has a story and it's not just in (laughs) one generation. It could be like several from several generations Mm -hmm. ago. And, you know, especially as you think of immigrant families moving all over the world and sort of like adding a little bit of something along the way as they moved countries and continents and over the generations. I think it's Mm. so beautiful. I think the work you're doing is so beautiful. So Mm. thank you for letting me be part of this story and for sharing what we are doing. Oh, Um, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so for people listening, um, of course, all your information is going to be in the show notes. But if you want to just say um, the name of your project again and um, where they can find you on the web or social media. 
Yeah, so we are heirloomproject.co. That's where you can find us. That's where our website is, has a ton of information. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for us on Instagram, we are at my heirloom project. Mm -hmm. And between the two, hopefully, you know, most of what you're seeking for is there. And if not, always feel free to email us hello at heirloomproject.co and we love getting in touch with our potential customers and just really hearing their stories and how we can help them preserve their um, culinary inheritance beautiful beautiful it's wonderful to talk to someone um we're very like-minded i think in our mission and it's just wonderful to talk to you so thank you so much thank you so much becky have a great day you too bye Bye bye-bye Thank you all so much for listening in today. Um, Just a couple things to wrap up. First, yes, you can um, connect with Sri in any of the places that she mentioned, and you can find those links in the show notes. You can also find images of Sri's beautiful cookbook, keeping in mind that you can design one just like hers and have it for your own family's recipes. Um, Two things about um, me and and my podcast and um, ways that you can help me. First of all, if you would leave a five-star rating and review, that would be um, so helpful and so wonderful. They always mean a lot to me personally, as well as helping me grow the podcast. And finally, if you do have a product that you think would be a perfect fit for um, my show and our listeners, Um, you can talk to me about that, about the sponsorship opportunities that are available. Um, You can email me at becky at thestoriedrecipe.com. I have a very limited um, number of slots for those, but I would like to hear about something that could fit my audience um, as beautifully as Shree's company fits. So with all that said, I will leave you to explore Heirloom Projects on your own. I hope you have a great week, my friends. 